I'm just picturing the Grinch up on his mountain, and he hears the postdoc singing. So he, <laughs> he like climbs down in his sleigh and takes all of their hope for a pay raise. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, we catch you up to speed on some important policy happenings that may impact you, for better or for worse. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 62. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. And life out of the lab. Just life in general. Just we're going to talk, talk about some life today. And, and policy and regulations. And People have policy. already turned off the podcast. Please don't turn it off yet. We will uh, try to make this as entertaining as possible. This is important stuff. But just wait until I get to Title 4, Subtitle B, Section 3022. You're going to really just be amazed. I already am. But before we get to that, how was your Thanksgiving? It was excellent. How was yours? It was good. It was good. I made my famous pumpkin pie. As as you do every year or three times a year. I'm actually happy because it's gotten to the point that my mom now says, and you're going to bring your pumpkin pie, right? Oh, it's, it's yours? It's as my if, thing now. As if you didn't get it off the internet? Well, is, it, hey, is it something you modified? Uh, to be fair, I, I got a different recipe off the internet this year. I switched it up. Cook's Illustrated? Uh, no, I don't. I like, they're very scientific. I don't know if you read them. Yeah, well, actually, I found if I see a recipe that I feel like has too many ingredients I don't feel like getting, then I'll just keep looking till i find one that has what i want my can i share my personal pet peeve about online recipes go ahead okay i hate it when there's a recipe and then one of the comments is i didn't have any of these ingredients so i substituted all these other ingredients and added four other things and it was great like (laughs) but you're not reviewing this recipe that is not helpful for me at all thank you for telling me about your personal cooking but it has nothing to do with me i wonder if that's synonymous to people's lab notebooks like when you're trying to follow a protocol and you read it, and you're like, oh, I want to see what Joe did. And so you look at Joe, and oh, yeah, actually, I substituted this amount of enzyme for that amount. We didn't have that buffer. so I Instead of tack, volume. I just cried into my tubes. <laughs> that always worked for me. Dan, I found something special today. Okay. Actually, I have it right here. I want to show it to you. I'm frightened. All right. Do you know what this is? It is a cardboard tube. This cardboard tube, Dan, I was... Not relatively nondescript. I think there might be a label on it. There's a label on it. So I was cleaning out my bedroom and actually uh, moved a dresser that had been there for years. And under a pile of stuff that had fallen off the back of the dresser was this cardboard tube. In it is the diploma from my PhD. <laughs> you never got it framed or put uh, on your wall at work? I never even opened this tube. Wow. So actually, I'm assuming that my diploma it probably is says it failed. <laughs> I can't even open this. It's still sealed. It says, this, we this hereby, I, the chancellor, whoever it was at the time, hereby retract Joshua's PhD. Oh my gosh, wouldn't that be scandalous if yeah, I open this, this right time. now and everybody, I'm such a hack on the show and about he to, doesn't even have his PhD. About to say goodbye, PhD. I can't even open this. Yeah, it's sealed. It's hermetically sealed. Mine, mine, my parents framed, and it hung in the coat closet at my house for... Oh, there we years. go. Should I take it out? I like that you're pretending that you're not, like, walking around in a cap and gown all the time. You've got your <laughs> hood on. Oh, I don't want to take this out. I, look at that. There it is. Are there, like, 
insects eating it or is it okay that looks okay let's see the most expensive piece of paper you've ever this purchased is, this is pretty cool this is the first time i've ever seen my phd diploma right here on the air it's all curled up oh man oh, you're getting fingerprints on it that's not archival paper <laughs> look at that is it valid people sign it people signed it let's see greetings why does it say greetings <laughs> be it known that joshua hall Having completed the studies and fulfilled the requirement of the faculty for the degree of Doctor of Philosophy in Microbiology and Immunology. I feel like the Wizard of Oz is conferring your brain right now. That is pretty cool. Don't spill your beer on it. That's all I have to say. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to put it back in the tube, back behind the dresser. Uh, where now I can't get it back in the tube. Well, you can see that this was really important to me. I'm like the Henry David Thoreau of <laughs> graduate school. Uh, all right. Well, well congratulations again, Josh. I know I was... Uh, there for that or probably around for that but congratulations again 100 years later thank you thank you dan some other good news besides me finding my diploma we got some new itunes reviews this week oh excellent i love those yeah i don't want to read these this first one comes from 2551 hours and it says i look forward to this every time it comes out relatable personal and honest I even tried some beer based on their description of it and was not disappointed. Now, that makes me happy. I suspect they mean they avoided a beer we said was terrible, right? <laughs> and I'm we, glad we, I avoided it. We they saved them right. the pain. Uh, I also appreciate how they relate with audience tweets and emails. A lot of the examples in the podcast are specific to bio and other sciences that involve benches. But don't let that dissuade you if you're in another field. I'm in a social science, and I get a lot out of it. Yeah, I have to say, we um, have listeners in all sorts of different graduate programs uh, and different types of training. And people do seem, there, there must be some commonality. Obviously, we don't have a ton of experience, but I think working at a university or, or being part of a university, there are certain aspects that just are part of every program. Yes, you have an advisor. Here's the things you need to know before you commit to that person here's yeah. how you get done with your work all of those things yeah absolutely all right dan and we got one other one this week um so this says uh, the the title this is from min min grateful listener and the title of this review is awesome podcast helps me breathe more easily this is this is a yoga podcast is it not yeah we're going to start our mindfulness and breathing segment it would be a good idea actually scientifically <sighs> proven to help your mood and attention <sighs> Now I sound like Darth Vader. <laughs> All right, so this one says, thank you both very much for your incredibly engaging and interesting podcast. It's very helpful for grad students across disciplines in so many different ways. It's both entertaining and educational. Thank you both so much. That is excellent. And I appreciate, Josh, that you didn't read the 50 one-star reviews. You found the two that were nice. That was really good. Well, I mean, it's our show. We can... That's right. Filter. Ed editorial control. So thanks for those reviews. And seriously, we really like reading these. Uh, I got to tell you, I actually texted Dan when I saw we had these earlier this week, and it really made my evening. I happened to read these, and they both made me smile. So thank you for those reviews, and we love to get them. So. We do, and it helps other people find the show. That's one of the things that iTunes uses to, to help rank the different podcasts and to, to connect it with people who have similar interests. So thank you for those, and, and if you have a chance to leave a review, please go do it. Absolutely. And the last thing I want to say, Dan, is it's the holiday season. I've noticed. And Santa Claus. Yeah, yeah no, I know yeah, the song. Okay. Go ahead. And so I just wanted to remind you, as you're doing your holiday shopping, you can go to our website and click on our Amazon banner that's right there on the side of the page. I think it's on the side. It is. And you click on that. It'll take you to Amazon. You can do your shopping. 
Everything's the same price, but if you click through our link, we get a little kickback that helps us out with some of the cost of the show. It's an easy way you can support us without really paying anything. Yeah. There's plenty of time. I know if you're like me, you're going to wait until Christmas Eve to do it anyway and just get the two-day shipping. So, sorry, this is late. It got stuck in the mail. I do so much shopping on Amazon. It's crazy. I should click through our link. You should. (laughs) Now, you found a very festive and unique ethanol this week, John. I did. Speaking of the holiday season, um, and this is also, as far as I remember, our first Oklahoma beer. Oh, excellent. Oh, (laughs) everything is a song today. (laughs) This is the Prairie Artisan Ale Christmas Bomb! Exclamation point. And this is an imperial stout brewed with spices. Okay. Uh, So you brought out wine glasses, so I was already a little nervous. Yeah, well, I think this is a type of beer. So this stand is this Imperial Stout. This is an 11% alcohol by volume. So it's recommended that you actually serve this in one of those glasses, those sort of tulipy shaped glasses, which I don't have. Ice cold, yeah. Yeah, so I have these white wine glasses. Yeah, you poured it and it is black as night it is the the darkest richest looking beer i've ever seen yeah well let's try this so this is uh apparently the christmas bomb is a beer they're well known for that people get excited about very limited release they happen to have a, just a few bottles at my local bottle store and i don't mind telling you dan this is a ten dollar bottle of beer right here Woo! so let's see if it's worth and it and you said 10 percent alcohol yes 11 11 okay wow so we're getting that extra percentage as a discount Woo wee. Yeah. Uh, it is intense. I am glad you split this up, not because it tastes bad, but because it is such an intense experience. Wow. Really a lot of chocolate. This is a, there's a thickness, sort of a thick, creamy chocolatiness to it, don't you think? Yeah, I was going to say. So my first sensation was this is a Coca Cola with chocolate syrup and cayenne in it. <laughs> Sounds disgusting. <laughs> is that not what it tastes like? There's like the sweetness and the cola-y flavor. Maybe there's a cup of coffee in there somewhere. You know, I didn't taste cola at all, but now that you said that... Yeah, I've, I've influenced your thinking. But you also get the cayenne. There's like a spice at the back of the throat. There is a spice, yeah. And it said it was brewed with spices. Maybe a nutmeg or a clove or Intense. something. Intense. So um, we're going to be sipping this one, I think. Wow. But I will say, actually, don't let our description make you think this is a bad beer. It's actually quite tasty. Oh, it's, it's very good. Hmm. And I recommend everybody go get a Coca-Cola, put in some Hershey syrup, a little dash of cayenne. Yeah, if you can't find the Prairie Artisan <laughs> Ale, if you, if you can find it, please buy the Christmas bomb and enjoy it. But if you can't, mm-hmm. we'll post Dan's recipe for <laughs> imitation Christmas bomb. I couldn't, I couldn't get the Christmas bomb, but I did have some <laughs> Coca-Cola and some chocolate syrup, and it was great. <laughs> I had some uh, Coke Zero and, uh, <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> and some Food Line chocolate syrup. Uh, oh, man. Tasted great. I dropped in a jalapeno and drank the thing. This beer sucks. All right. <laughs> two, out of, two stars. Wouldn't drink. Dan, ready for science in the news. I am always ready. All right, Dan, so the whole rest of our show is going to be science in the news today. Excellent. So as we talked about... It's finally taken over. Finally. As we mentioned in the intro, we're going to talk today about a couple of, I guess, science policy happenings. You made fun of me for saying it that way, but... Things things happen every day in policy. (laughs) They do. Uh, So here are a couple things we're going to discuss that I think are potentially important to some of our listeners um, that we thought would be useful for you to know about. And... I know some of these, you know, I've mentioned to faculty and students um, at my own university, and they were not aware of these things that are going on. And these things have potentially 
pretty fundamental impacts on uh, either your funding or your salary in some cases if you happen to be a postdoc. So what we want to do is just catch you up to speed on two major things in the news that have an impact on researchers, at least here in the United States. We're going to talk about the FLSA, which is the Fair Labor Standards Act which we've talked about before. And then we're going to talk a little bit about a bill that's before Congress right now called the 21st Century Cures Act. Okay, well, let's. are we going to start with the FLSA? Yeah, let's talk about the FLSA. So, Dan, just as a reminder, the FLSA, and actually just for some history, uh, the FLSA actually started back in 1938 in the United States. And this is the whole... This is the thing that gives us things like the 40-hour work week. Yeah, you heard about it here on Hello PhD back in our 1938 episode <laughs> on right. the FLSA. Episode minus 342. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so the FLSA is what gave us the 40-hour work week, the minimum wage, prohibited the employment of minors. Uh, so all of these kind of fundamental labor practices that we're pretty familiar with today in the United States came about due to this FLSA. Now, this thing gets updated once in a while, and... Most recently, the Obama administration proposed some changes to some of these minimum salary requirements. And I'm pretty sure we broke this story. Definitely. I mean, this was way back. I had to look to make sure today. And this was way back on episode two in July really? 2015. Wow. We talked about, actually, this was back when the FLSA was a gleam in President Obama's eye, I yep. think. But the notion was there were going to be updates that the minimum salary for non-exempt jobs in the United States was going to be raised to $47,476. So what that means is any employee who makes less than $47,476 a year would have to be paid overtime if they worked more than a 40-hour work week. So said another way, if you're a salaried employee and your salary is less than $47,476 a year, you are owed overtime if you work more than 40 hours a week. And the reason we talked about it is because that describes most postdocs, or many postdocs. That's I suppose right. there are a few places that they were paid more than that, but in, in a grand majority of, of universities, a postdoc made under that wage and would have been affected by this law. Absolutely. and, and In a good way, they would have gotten a raise. Yeah. yeah, and so a lot of that comes from, you know, a lot of universities look to NIH to set standards, and the NIH postdoctoral fellowship starting salary uh, for postdocs was, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was in the low 40s. And so effectively, if this went through, universities would have to choose to either track postdoc hours and pay postdocs overtime wages for hours over 40 that they worked, which would be, as we know, most postdocs probably work more than 40 hours a week, or they could simply raise postdoc salaries to that new minimum of 47000 $476, and everything would be cool. So hopefully you postdocs were holding your breath all this time because Josh has an update. That's right. Well, it turns out, fast forward, that was in July 2015, and May, on May 18th, 2016, President Obama and the Labor Secretary Perez announced that they were, in fact, updating this rule. They were raising this FLSA minimum salary to $47,476. And this would go into effect on December 1st, 2016. Hey, that just happened, right? Until November 23rd, 2016, when a U.S. district judge in Texas imposed an injunction that temporarily stopped the rules enforcement nationwide. And they wanted to be able to have time to determine whether the Department of Labor actually had the authority to issue that regulation without congressional approval. 
So that sound of screeching brakes you hear <laughs> was all the universities across the nation who suddenly had to decide, well, now what are we going to do? Okay, and they had like seven days to decide? Yeah, so it's worth noting that the universities, there, there had been a lot of confusion. Universities anyway. love to turn on a dime. Let me tell you something. <laughs> oh, goodness. There's no committee meetings. They don't have to ask anybody or have uh, any kind of discussion about it. They'll just make a decision. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of debating throughout universities um, over the last six months or so, um, trying to figure out what to do about this. But, you know, a lot of the majority of universities have said, okay, well, I guess... The easiest thing to do would be to increase minimum postdoc salaries because, again, the flip side would be to comply with this new rule, we would have to track postdoc hours and pay overtime. It would be more expensive to do all that. Um, and so not many universities want to do that. Then all of a sudden, when this injunction came down, the chaos has just exponentially expanded. And, and there are a lot of universities doing a lot of different things. And so... One one thing that I think is useful, like I said, a lot of institutions tend to look to NIH for guidance. So NIH has has put out there that they have increased and are sticking with their increase of postdoc minimum salaries for their their main postdoc fellowship awards, these NRSA F32 awards, that now the new minimum for their trainees will be this $47,000. So you would think now, okay, well, all the universities will say, Sounds good. We'll go along with NIH. Thank you, NIH. And, you know, some institutions are actually. Just this week, an email came across from our chancellor at UNC Chapel Hill saying, in spite of the injunction, we're moving forward. At UNC, all postdoc salaries will be a minimum of 47000 Yeah, I'm sure they've already done the math to figure out that they can do it because they thought they would have to do it. You know, just carry on, right? Well, but that's not true everywhere. So a number of other universities actually reversed their decision to increase postdoc salaries. Any large ones that I might recognize? So it's worth noting now, Dan, I was gonna I was gonna say this a little later, but a good resource that all of our postdocs or anyone interested should be aware of is the future of research. And so I think we've talked about these guys before. The future research dot org. Yeah, so you can go to futureofresearch.org. Gary McDowell is the executive director of this Future of Research, and they've done a lot of studies about postdocs, done a lot of organization to advocate for postdoc issues. Uh, you can actually, if you go back to our episode we did on how many postdocs there are, episode 47, we talked about some of the work Future Research is doing. But they are actually out there trying to communicate with postdocs across the country to figure out and actually keep a record of what different institutions are doing. And some of the word that I'm hearing just following the Twitter activity and their website is that some postdocs are actually finding out what's happening with their salary from Future of Research's page rather than from their own employer. There's no communication from the... It, university? it varies greatly from, from institution to institution. So looking at the Future of Research's page, some institutions who have actually canceled their plans, Iowa State, Michigan State, the whole University of Illinois system, UMass Medical School, Michigan. I'm just picturing the Grinch up on his mountain and he hears the postdoc singing. So he, <laughs> he like climbs down in his sleigh and takes all of their Hope for a pay raise. Yeah, I mean, Merry Christmas. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the big problems. You know, we've talked to postdocs a lot on the show, and one of the main issues postdocs have is feeling like they don't really have a seat at the table. They don't really have this recognized place within the institution. And I think 
at least at institutions or postdocs at institutions that are facing this raise that was offered and then pulled back that has to further this feeling of not being supported. Well, and for graduate students looking for postdocs, I'm sure this is going to factor in. Definitely, if you are on the market right now, go to the Future of Research website and include this in your decision about where you choose to continue your studies. Yeah, and and one of the big impacts of this whole fiasco is that there already was some variation from institution to institution with regards to benefits offered and also salary but now with these vastly different responses to this FLSA thing, that's really broadening. So the salary differentials could be pretty stark in certain instances. So it might actually be worth looking into that. Actually, it probably is worth looking into that if you're on the postdoc job search. Because, you know, we've talked about there are institutions that are doing other things too. Like there are actually a handful of institutions that have decided, you know what, we're going to make our postdocs hourly employees now. To, to get around some of these things. So it's really a mess. And um, I would encourage you, if you're interested or if you're on the postdoc search, to go to the Future Research page and, and see some of the, the data they've tabulated. But also one of the calls they have, and we'll give a signal boost to that, is if your institution is not on this list, they have a call out. They're trying to gather as much info as they can. So you can contact them through their Twitter at F-O-R-S-Y-M-P for SIMP, or you can email them info at futureofresearch.org and let them know what's going on at your institution. And we'll post a link in our show notes. So, so definitely go check that out and be part of that conversation. All right, Dan. So the other thing we wanted to talk about was this really big bill. And I, I don't know if people have noticed because grad students I know are busy in the lab, but we had an election here in the United States. No. We did. We did, actually. Interesting. Um, for president and other Hope things. Hope it turned out well. So there's been a lot of news media that has sort of centered around that transition. And from my perspective, what has not been covered very much at all is this huge bill that is before Congress right now, the 21st Century Cures Act, that could have a big impact on a lot of our listeners and the biomedical workforce. And I asked around last week, Dan, and actually <laughs> didn't find anybody that had even heard of this thing, including faculty. Yeah, it, it's funny because you're right. Everybody is focused on the president-elect, and um, there's still there's still legislation going through Congress. And this particular piece affects our listeners. So uh, again, it's the 21st Century Cures Act. I think the uh, the 15th Century Cures Act might be a little more interesting, like <laughs> funding for the National Institutes of Bloodletting and tuberculosis and uh, plague. Yeah, and, there yeah. you go. Uh, but yeah, Dan, you did a little research on this on this act. This I did. Week, I read so. the entire thousand pages, uh, <laughs> word for word, of course. No. So we're going we're gonna to keep the show at four hours today. So if you could just walk yeah. us through the high points. Yeah, section 1002. Uh, right, no. Actually, the notes really do say so. No, I have... I have no, I, I actually did. I, I read through some of the, the summarized um, notes on the bill just because I think there are a couple places that our listeners are going to want to look if they have a particular interest in this subject. So um, the whole first section of the bill is titled Discovery, and it gives $4.8 billion over 10 years to the National Institutes of Health. So if you are working in a lab at a bench in biomedical sciences, this certainly uh, will affect you if this gets passed. Yeah, and I want to say that's a big sum of money. And also, I want to say this. I mean, this is a bill that's likely going to happen because as we know, at least here in the United States, Political gridlock is the norm for almost everything, 
except for biomedical research. So this bill already overwhelmingly passed the House of Representatives with it a bipartisan did. coalition and is sitting before the Senate. Looks like it's going to pass, and President Obama is really excited about this, too. It was the subject of his uh, weekly web podcast this week, so you can go and watch him talk about it. Um, and again, that first section is, is about discovery. The whole act is really focused on uh, funding new research for discovery. It's, it's all about um, reducing the burden and regulation of clinical trials and FDA approval. And then there's a bunch of random other stuff that I'll, I'll just briefly mention. But is this, is this mostly for basic science, Dan? Is that the focus on this? Or? That first section is really all about basic science, that discovery section. So if, if you, we'll put the link up, but if you peruse through there, there are requirements that the NIH establish an innovation prize program to fund areas of biomedical science that could realize significant advancements or improvements in health outcomes. Um, section 1023, Josh, uh, interestingly. Hang on, let me turn to that. Yeah, get to there. They have to reduce the administrative burdens of researchers funded by the NIH. We've talked before about how much work it is to maintain your grant uh, status. Yeah, Dan, I'm actually putting in an NIH renewal grant for an educational program I run that's due next month. And man, I tell you, actually writing the grant, the content part, that's the easy part. But trying to figure out these different forms and all these names and numbers and... Yeah, we, we like our... our research faculty to be working on research probably more than administration. Although that section of the bill actually did take a look to see, you know, are there specific proposals? And it seems like the uh, result is they need to make some recommendations and a timeline. That's, that's the real requirement. It doesn't really say how they're going to do it. Well, and I imagine Congress doesn't really know the specifics of how that would happen, right? I'm sure they don't. I don't know. Um, so there's there's more in there about um, conducting high risk, high re reward research. You know, we talk about how a lot of times research becomes incremental where you know you can get funding to just mutate that next amino acid in the protein you study. Um, so maybe there'll be some, some incentives for doing things that are a little bit further afield. Subtitle C in Title I discovery is uh, about supporting young emerging scientists. So there's Ooh, a loan like repayment program. Oh, loan repayment program. Tell me more. Yeah, right. Uh, to, to help fund that, there are capstone awards. So if you are in that phase of your research career, definitely go check out those sections because there may be opportunities for additional funding as you move through your, your training. So actually, I see here, and, and you mentioned these capstone awards. So it looks like these are awards for scientists that are not at the PI level, but presumably are junior scientists or trainees. Yeah, that's right. Um, so the, these capstone awards, let me just look it up and we'll find it. Section 490, Part A, the secretary may make awards to support outstanding scientists that have been funded by the NIH, and they will be made to facilitate successful transition or conclusion of research programs or for other purposes as determined by the director of the NIH. Uh, whatever that means, Josh. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like money is flowing to trainees. Yeah, and you know, it sounds like there's a lot of, you know, this money is going to be flowing to NIH, and there's a lot of discretion by the, the leaders of the NIH, by the director. Um, and it's actually worth noting, I wasn't really going to get into this in any detail, but there will be a new, well, okay, there presumably could be a new director of NIH. Francis Collins has announced he is stepping down, as is commonplace for an administration transition. He's left open the door that he would be open to being reappointed, but there's certainly um, no guarantee, and maybe that's not likely that would happen. So, But it sounds like whoever the new director is um, will be a big player in determining the specifics of how this money is, is doled out. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Josh, you remember uh, we were in school just after 9-11, and you studied uh, a microbiological agent that probably wasn't important, except that there was extra funding for terrorism research. Yeah, I mean, I started grad school in 2002, which was soon after the anthrax scare following 9-11. And actually, at that time, my department, the microbiology department, did a fairly large shift into studying um, some of these potential biowarfare agents for the main reason that a lot of funding was earmarked for these things um, by the federal government. Yeah, so I just want to call out a couple of the um, the specifically mentioned branches of science in the bill so that um, for those of you who are in those branches, you can go check it out and see if there are new opportunities in your field if this gets passed. So um, there's a, a big push for pediatric research. So if you are studying diseases that... Uh, predominantly occur in children. I think there's going to be some room for you. Title one, subtitle E. Go check that out. Um, there's a weird carve out for Lyme disease and it's under the, uh, the title for Medicaid, Medicare and other reforms, subtitle C miscellaneous. It's like the very last thing in the bill. It's like, and Lyme disease for some reason. Somebody had a, had an honor uncle with Lyme disease that they I'm sure that's true. We've talked before about the, the cancer cure moonshot. Do you remember that? Yeah, Dan, I remember that was, um, Vice President Biden's initiative. Yeah, so in the State of the Union address, President Obama said, and we're going to try and cure cancer, and Joe Biden's going to lead it. And so Joe Biden's sitting in the back, like, clapping for cancer cures, and then he says, and Joe Biden, and his jaw drops. Uh, So there's $1.8 billion dedicated to therapies, improved detection, and vaccines that will help treat cancer. Now, I think we know that the notion of curing cancer is a little more nuanced and subtle, But um, if you're doing research in that field, or particularly if you're doing translational work or you're developing therapies, I think there could be some opportunity there. Um, There's a billion dollars for heroin and opioid addiction treatments, which is probably more on the healthcare side, less on the research side. But some of our listeners may be involved in that. And then $3 billion for brain disorders, Alzheimer's, epilepsy, traumatic brain injury were some of the things that he mentioned. My research was on traumatic brain injury. I don't know if I could have gotten money for it, but um, they're looking for treatments for some of these diseases. Yeah, Dan, it looks like also in addition to some of those specific medical research areas, there's also increased funding for reforming of mental health and suicide prevention as well. Absolutely. And I think a lot of these things are long overdue. The president mentions that he mentioned that heroin and an opioid overdose have now exceeded deaths by car crash, car accident in the United States, which is a pretty incredible thing to think about. And so um, I think this bill is an attempt to kind of catch us up medically with the the things that are actually facing Americans. Yeah, I mean, I was really a little bit heartened just seeing all of the, you know, being a bio, in the biomedical research world and seeing so many things that our government's divided on, you know, the niche that you happen to, to walk around in is the one area that seems to be supported in a bipartisan way. Um, really, really kind of makes you feel <laughs> yeah. feel good to see the government working together for something that impacts us all in such a profound way. It does. You and I came in at a time when, um, you know, people replaced toilet paper in the bathroom with RO1 grains. You just rip off one <laughs> and, and throw it away because they were, everybody had one. And then I think over the course of the last 10 or 15 years, the funding has just been cut and cut and cut. And funding that was was authorized and and given out was then taken back. I mean, it's really been a tough place to be. So I think $4.8 billion over the next 10 years is going to help. Yeah. So Dan, I mean, this all sounds perfect. This sounds like 
Santa Claus has visited the research lab. So, are there any are there any drawbacks to to this bill? Yeah, it is not uh, without its critics, and I think uh, the the parts that I've heard about that people are worried about involve the speed up of the FDA approval process. Now, I think we all agree we want treatments um, quicker. We want less bureaucracy. We want you know. I talked about a clinical research project in the last show that um, has breakthrough status, and I, I'm just anxious to have that tested and approved and, and access to it. But um, there is a downside. It is, it's a good and a bad thing to remove some of these regulations. So um, one of the, the red flags that people have caught on to is that there was a big lobbying effort. There were 58 pharmaceutical companies and 24 device companies. Um, they spent $192 million lobbying for aspects of this bill that we're talking about. And it gives the FDA more discretion on the, the types of studies that are required to evaluate new devices and, and new medicines. And so, so that sounds good, and I think that can be good. But there are a couple of, I guess, worrying uh, provisions in there. So one, one that really kind of stood out to me was that clinical testing, this is section 2263, for those of you keeping track, clinical testing of medical devices or drugs no longer requires the informed consent of the subjects if the testing poses no more than minimal risk and includes safeguards. I'm not a policy wonk. I don't know precisely what that means in real life, but not requiring informed consent of people who are being treated with things seems a little weird to me. No, and so so to be clear, this is informed consent when a device or a treatment is being in the testing phase, right? Yep. If, if the testing poses no more than minimal risk and includes safeguards. As judged I, by. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that's the thing. Like the language is a little bit loose. There's another one that says to, to support approval of a drug for a new indication, a new type of disease, the FDA must evaluate the use of evidence from clinical experience in place of evidence from clinical trials and establish a streamlined rev- data review process. So if, if I have drug A and I use it to treat heart attacks and it's been tested in a clinical trial and then I decide I'm going to also apply it to gout, um, I can just rely on what doctors have said about it You're saying it, doing another trial and proving that it works. You know, we didn't see these side effects the way it's been used before, so presumably it's going to be okay. Well, and it's not just the side effects. Uh, it implies to me that it's also about the efficacy, that, that my drug is good at treating gout because doctors say, hey, it seems like it's a little bit better. Their gout got better when their heart attack did or yeah. whatever. So... Um, I think it's not a, a pure as driven snow uh, choice to reduce the amount of, of barriers to research, but um, hopefully on the whole, it will lead to, to better research and better treatments. So Dan, what do you think, what do you think overall after reading, you know, you did some pretty extensive research on the bill. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are that this process is convoluted and dirty, but um, hopefully on the whole, it will be good for uh, our listeners and for, really everybody who is, you know, getting medical care, which is all of us. And and I think sometimes we make compromises to get the things we want. I wish it were a better process. Yeah. And if you have thoughts or opinions on this new 21st century cures bill, we'd love to hear about it. So yeah, let us know. If you're a policy wonk and can set us straight on any of this, I would love it. Um, please write in, call us. Um, we can have you on the show. Because we are not. No. I just looked at my diploma and it said nothing about policy. No no wonk stamp on there. No wonks. All right, listeners, hopefully that was useful and, and caught you up to speed on a couple big things uh, going on in the Washington, D.C. area that might impact you. So um, be sure to check out 
the news. You can search for FLSA and postdocs. Check out futureofresearch.org or just Google 21st Century Cures Act. Um, I believe that will be voted on by the Senate in the next week. Yeah, I think so. And, and President Obama has uh, said he'd sign it the moment it hit his desk. So um, more likely than some of the other things we've talked about in the past that were months off. Time for some etymology. Word of the week. What do you have for us? And the clue last week was, this probably gave you nightmare flashbacks to your time in the tissue culture hood. If your pipette tip and a non-sterile surface touch together, you may experience this problem with your cell cultures. What do you think? Well, I hate to admit it on the air, but I've had this problem more than a time or two, and that is contamination. You got it exactly correct. Contamination from the root con together and ta- uh, tangier, um, which is related to the word tangent, which means to touch. It's like the tangent touches the edge of a circle. So contaminate to touch together. And obviously very bad if you're doing tissue culture. So I have a question, Dan. So so con together, um, does that is that related at all to like con man or con artist? Conspiracy? I'll bet it is. Like what because you said coming together. I'm trying to place that with these sort of negative. Yeah, con man and con artist are conspiracy. that comes from conspiracy. We'll have to look it up. Yeah. I don't spear, I don't know, we can yeah. we can find out. Um, but I'll bet you it does. Um, you usually are right on these things for some reason. You <laughs> have a sixth sense for your etymologies. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut yeah. once in a while. All right. Well, let me give you the clue for next week, Josh. Uh, and this one is holiday related. This mysterious group of ancient oak knowers originated many of our modern Christmas traditions. Read it one more time. This mysterious group of ancient oak knowers originated many of our modern Christmas traditions. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word as a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com, and I will randomly select the winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. You're such an oak knower, Dan. Well, I appreciate that vote of confidence, Josh. All right, Dan. As usual, it's been great to get together and talk to you and drink a tasty beer. I'm glad, we, I'm glad we had something a little stronger for this uh, depth of regulation and policy discussion. Yeah, we needed it. This was this was heavy. We'll have to get back to something light and fluffy next week. The beer was heavy like the discussion. Oh, there we go. There we go. Hey, next week, I hate to even say this because it might hold me to it, but I want to do this last year. I've got a great homemade eggnog recipe, and... I'm thinking about trying it on the show next week. What do you think? I think it's a good idea. We'll see if we can get all the ingredients together. It's not not trivial to make eggnog. All right. So tune in two weeks from now for Josh's homemade eggnog made right on the show. And then three weeks later when we get over the salmonella infection that we obtained drinking the eggnog. Joe Biden, salmonella moonshot. (laughs) I can't wait. See you next time, Dan. See you next time. Hi, everybody. On the first day of my administration, I promised to restore science to its rightful place. I told you we would unleash American innovation and technology to tackle the health challenges of our time. Over the last eight years, we've delivered on that promise in many ways, both big and small, including, of course, providing health coverage to 20 million more Americans and making health care more affordable for all Americans. Right now, we have the chance to put our best minds to work one more time and in a big way. There's a bill in Congress that could help unlock a cure for Alzheimer's and cancer as we know it and help people seeking treatment for opioid addiction finally get the help they need. It's called 
the 21st Century Cures Act. It's an opportunity to save lives and an opportunity we just can't miss. This bill would do a lot of good things at once. Let me tell you about five of them. First, it will make real investments this year to combat the heroin and prescription drug epidemic that's plaguing so many of our communities. Drug overdoses now take more lives every year than traffic accidents, and deaths from opioid overdoses have nearly quadrupled since 1999. Under Obamacare, health plans in the marketplace have to include coverage for treatment, but there's more we need to do. For nearly a year, I've been calling for this investment so hundreds of thousands of Americans can get the treatment they need, and I'm glad Congress is finally getting it done. The second thing the Cures Act does is make a significant investment in Joe Biden's cancer moonshot. In my State of the Union address this year, I set a goal of making America the country that ends cancer once and for all and I put the Vice President in charge of mission control. This bill will allow us to invest in promising new therapies, in new ways to detect and prevent cancer, and to develop more vaccines for cancer, just as we have them for measles or mumps. Joe's done an incredible job. This bill is a chance for Congress to do its part too. Third, we'll be giving researchers the resources they need to help identify ways to treat, cure, and prevent all kinds of brain disorders. Alzheimer's, epilepsy, traumatic brain injury, and it also supports the Precision Medicine Initiative, an effort we started to bring doctors and data together to develop treatments and health care that one day can be tailored specifically for you. That can lead to some big breakthroughs. Fourth, the Cures Act includes bipartisan mental health reforms, including important programs for suicide prevention. And fifth, we're making sure the FDA incorporates patient voices your voices into the decisions they make as they develop drugs. So that's what the 21st Century Cures Act is all about. Like all good legislation, it reflects compromise. This week, the House passed it overwhelmingly and in bipartisan fashion. The Senate will vote in the next few days, and I hope they'll do the same. I'll sign it as soon as it reaches my desk. Because like a lot of you, I've lost people that I love deeply to cancer. I hear every day from Americans whose loved ones are suffering from addiction and other debilitating diseases. And I believe we should seize every chance we have to find cures as soon as possible. When it's your family, hope can't come soon enough. Thanks everybody and have a great weekend.